On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, it is time for the brightest conversation in Hamilton podcasting. Lauren Lieberman joins me. We're talking about the teacher strikes. We're talking about the blockades on the rail lines. We're talking about issues with a group in Hamilton and whether they should be allowed to rent city property. The NFL, we got lots and lots of stuff we're going to get to. Oh, and a 36-year-old woman who expects an awful lot of her parents. We will explain. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. In studio for Friday evening, brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio with a guy who you've heard on the airwaves in this city for a long time. His name is Lauren Lieberman. Thanks for coming in today. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Scott. I'm going to talk like Trudeau tonight. Well, except his voice is much, much higher. It's the whispery, serious tone, I understand. I'm also auditioning for the Golf Network. (laughs) <laughs> the Goya. Well, then you got to add a little bit of a British accent as well. That would be, uh, I've, I've always wondered why all the golf analysts, the good ones are mm. British. Most of the good ones Sounds anyway. right. Or, or from, or with, a, with an accent, not North American. Faldo and yeah. all those, uh, you know, there's so many of them. Anyway, good for them. I mean, they're all good at it. I just don't know why the Americans have had such a hard time. Why does every actor in an ancient Greece or ancient Rome movie need a British accent? Well, that's true too. Most of, because most of them came from Shakespearean theater. I, um, yeah, no, there's, there's a lot of these, uh, a lot we'll of these oddities, a lot yes. of these oddities. The, um, speaking of oddities, just to get started today, because this, this story, I, I saw this just before I left the other office today over at the spectator. And I, I swear this to me in a weird kind of way, encapsulates a lot of our world today. In so many ways, there's so many pieces of this story that just tells the tale of 2020, not to be Barbara Walters, but 2020 in North America. In Canton, Ohio, an Ohio woman was arrested for calling 911 when her parents cut off her cell phone service. Now, that story would be, you know, okay, so a 12, 13-year-old girl is really upset and makes the mistake of calling 911, thinking this song. This is a 36-year-old woman <laughs> whose parents, who was living at home, uh, whose parents uh, uh. cut off her cell service that they were paying for. Sure. And she called 911 because this is clearly an emergent situation. Well, I hope the police sent someone and disciplined these parents accordingly. Uh. You would think that that was probably going to be the outcome because that would be the way we would expect this to be dealt with now. That, you know, if you're 36, parents should be paying for your cell phone bill. And if they don't, they're horrible parents who clearly have a problem and don't understand your situation. Careful, our children could be listening. Look, uh, if my children uh, turn 36 and need to be at home for some compelling reason... Mm -hmm. That's fine. We love having them around, mm-hmm. but they'll be paying for their own cell phone at that point. I assure you, I assure you. And they already are paying for their own cell phones. I just, the story, I love it so much because as I say, it speaks so vo- voluminously about so many parts of our life. The 36 year old living at home, expecting mom and dad still to be covering the bills, and cell phone is the ultimate. Cell phone, of, the, the social media yes. being uh, th- that you have yes. to have this or it's an emergency that you would think that the police would deem your crisis to be mm. worth their time. So many different things about this. I, I And as you say, I almost do expect someone to take her side and say, yeah, the parents are wrong. The parents are wrong. Someone, someone will be on her side. You know they will. Well, did they warn her that the time of their support was coming to an end? Have they been supportive of all the options for her to pay her own cell phone bill? It's not as simple as this is just the woman's problem. This, this the could parents be, need to assume some responsibility here. This could be the final straw in a series of lesser-known microaggressions that she has been facing from these parents over this time. Very fair, Scott. Thank you for coming around on that. Wow. They are, they may be cell phonist. They may have done this (laughs) out of a hatred for social media. Just saying. Anti-cell phonists. Anti-cellites. I don't know. 
J- Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld had the anti-dentite. Dentites, yes. Yeah, of so maybe an anti-cellite, it would be a real thing. And if that is a real thing. Anti-cellulite. Well, that, although that, okay. That's I, a real thing. I, that, that's a real thing. People pay a lot of money yes. to deal with that stuff. Um, anyway, this, uh, the, an officer contacted this woman and advised she call emergency services only for emergencies. Clearly she didn't call on her cell phone. No, I guess not. She must've used the parent's phone at home that and they in, were paying for. And congratulations to her for being able to figure out how to do that. You know, I'm going to talk about this. We're, we're moving on, but I'm going to talk about this another day. But I called a company, I called a, a business recently. I can't remember what business it was because I, I will tell everyone, next time you call a company, next time you're calling someplace, a phone company, whatever, take a listen for this because when you get the automated voice person, they come on and they say, if you're calling from a touch-tone phone, who in 2020 is not calling from a touch-tone phone? Who is using the rotary dial phone in 2020? That seems like a bit of a superfluous statement that you could probably cut out of the messages in 2020. Uh, if you're calling from a exist. phone that doesn't have buttons on it, who, there's nobody. Even if you have a, a rotary phone at home still, chances are you've got another one that you would use. Anyways. So yeah, so this woman, um, just a piece of advice. If you, if your parents, if you're 36 living at home and your parents cut off your cell service, probably take it up with mom and dad, not the local constabulatory. Don't, Seems unnecessary. Don't leave us hanging. Did don't. this work out? Did she get her phone back? Uh, no. Have we set up a GoFundMe for her? <laughs> That's coming. Two hours later, she called again and was belligerent and start, said she believed it to be a legitimate issue. Um, she's now been charged. Mom and dad's fault. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last year, I had Alex Johnstone on the show, who is the chair of the public school board. I don't know if she still is. She was at the time. I think she still is. Yes, she is. And the reason she was on then was because people may recall that last winter, we had a rash of snow days. There were something like seven or eight snow days and kids were missing class. And we had her on saying, when do you reach the point Hmm. when you start to say, we have to add some extra classes at the end of the year to make up for this lost time? And the answer was, well, we're no, we're really nowhere close to that. And we're starting to walk down that same path. I don't, I don't know how many days each of the boards has lost so far, but we don't seem to be any closer to a settlement with the teacher's situation. And so I presume we're going to be having more strike days and more days of missed school and on and on. At what point do you start to say our kids are not benefiting from missing all this school and somehow, somewhere along the way, it has to be cutting into their ability to move on to the next grade and have learned everything they're supposed to learn, doesn't it? Well, there has to be a point where the school year becomes in jeopardy or... No, it's not there yet. No, but, or what are you doing? All of those days. Um, I, I do disagree with you, Scott. I think I think that there is a very strong chance that the government is going to get a deal with the Catholic Union, who has been at the table all day today and most of the week. And this show of solidarity of all the school boards is a giant misnomer because one of them has been choosing to, uh, we just, if you listen to talk radio, there only is one school board and, and it's represented by Harvey Bishop, right? Mm, like Bishop, that's yep, that's yep. it. Well, there's, there's three others. Um, I think if Mr. Ford's government is able to get a deal from one of the school boards, it's going to make things look very, very different. Uh, fair enough. And, and maybe there will be, maybe there will be, but I go back to that conversation I had last year and. I always wonder how it is that we can have students miss as many days as they seem to do, whether it's snow days or whether it's work stoppages. And we just say, "Eh, no big deal. We can just compress the curriculum into the remaining days. If that's the case, why are we not compressing the curriculum anyway so that our students are getting more learning? Because clearly, if you look at the EQAO scores, they haven't exactly been stellar. Why are we not doing a better job at cramming more stuff in so they get more learning up until now? Well, which which side do you think this falls on? Either the kids are uh, in school screwing around too much or um, that they're going to get a whitewashed version of education this year and miss a bunch of stuff or a bit of both. 
Which which way does this end up? Because there's no way you can lose 10, 15 days of, of classroom time and not feel a but difference. We, but we don't fail kids now. We don't hold kids back. And look, this isn't even teachers. Like, I, I, I guarantee you there are teachers who would eagerly say, that person, that person, that person, they need to do another year of grade, whatever. They're not ready to move on, but they're not permitted to do that. We flush these kids through the system, whether they're ready or not. And now we're doing it with missed days and Mm -hmm. disruptions all over the place. And not just this year, as I say, last year with weather, I just don't understand how this is, if we have all this flappy, loose time that apparently we can make up, why are we not using that time more effectively within the class? situation. No, that, that time is for, um, dodgeball well, or, no, there's, or look, there's, out time uh, outside activity, or I guess that they've made uh, the leeway that there's extra time in the curriculum. Cause eventually there comes a point in time where the school year is going to be in jeopardy. But we know from our standardized testing, whether you agree with standardized testing or not, we, we know from the standardized testing that math scores have been going down. English and reading have been hanging in there doing okay for the most part, but we know that it's not like all these kids are doing so well that Mm -hmm. we can build in all this extra time just in case, and it's not really affecting anything. We know that. We know that. And again, I want to make the point clear. While we're talking about the teacher's strike today, this is not a teacher's issue. This is an administration and a school board issue that we push kids through and we the stuff that we're doing. Nonetheless, I just don't understand how we have a system that is set up that has this much loose time apparently built in that we can get by with this and we're okay with this because the grades are not like, does anyone think that our kids are generally as a, as a collective walking out of school with grades that are the comparable of the best in the world? Well, if, if you listen to the unions, yes, we have the finest education system in the world. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, um, uh, public school board, 47% of grade three students performed at or above the provincial standard for math, while only 36% of grade six students did the same. I don't know, Lauren, that with those numbers that we can afford to be saying, ah, take whatever time off. You know, we're, we're going to work this thing out and you know what? We'll push you through to the next grade and you'll be fine. When the statistics give information like that, we need to say that teaching's not about achieving statistics. It's about molding the next generation, Scott. So your criteria is flawed. And we both know that math is very culturally biased. Well, we've been told that before. Uh, by no, the way, math is the only thing that isn't. No, but I, we though there there are those who though say that what? math is math has cultural no everything bias and it's and it's also a gender unfair. Anyway, uh, back to this though. I got an email from a teacher as we're talking saying the 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 magic number that apparently schools worry about is fifteen days missed, and then potentially you would have to start making up classes and doing something else. And okay, so let's say 15 days is in fact the number that they're pointing to. Does that mean that if a student misses only 14 days or 13 days, that that's no no problem? Because look, there's a, according to this, there's 187 teaching days in Ontario every year. Scott, you're missing it. We're taking, we're talking about like nine or 8%, if my math is correct, that we would just lop that off. But a kid is sick. You get a flu, you get a cold. Think about the normal amount of school days a kid misses in a year and add that on top of. It's not about um, how many days of learning did teachers teach. It's about how many days of learning did a student consume to be able to get to the next hurdle, the next grade. And so my question comes to the point then, or comes to this, is that, okay, so we've got the teachers, we don't know when the strike action or the work action, the job action is going to be resolved. It Mm -hmm. could be, as you say, very soon with the Catholic board, or Mm -hmm. it could drag on. We don't know. But are we okay then simply saying, well, you know what, that lost time is lost time. We're going to push the kids through to the next grade regardless because we don't hold them back. Is that... Is that where we are now that we can just do that and feel good about our system? Why don't we set up some summertime e-learning for the difference that was missed? 
We'll talk about e-learning in a minute. Uh, but, but, but you may have to. Because I would I would bet you money, Lauren, that if this thing drags on for a little while longer and finally comes to a resolution and the province or the administrations of the school board says, we've missed too much time, we've got to add classes to the end of the school year. So there will be two weeks added and teachers are expected to be in class and students are expected to be there. Uh, that will not be met with great cheers and celebration. I don't know. Some teachers may like to work some extra time because... We need to remember when they are on a strike day, they're not getting paid. And I will grant you that, that I would agree with you on that one. I'm saying I don't think the unions would be Fair. lauding yeah. such a thing. I, yeah. I, if I misspoke, I apologize. I think there would be a lot of teachers yeah. who, would be, who would be okay who with it. Who are missing a lot of dough. I think there would be some teachers, probably quite a few teachers who'd be okay, but the unions would be screaming saying, no, you got to pay us extra or something. I don't know what would be the the situation that would come there. I'm just looking at this, thinking to myself, as I say, we are talking about all this time that is missed in a system that is putting out not good EQAO math scores. And we're just talking about math. We're not even talking about the other ones because we don't, we do English and math in the standardized testing. Mm -hmm. I just don't see that it's a non-issue. I don't see that it's a non-issue. Somewhere along the way, to me, you've got to make up this time. And I don't. And when Alex Johnstone was on here last year, if my memory serves, and I believe it does, she said, we'll compress our days and get that teaching in. And I go back to my point. If you can compress your days to get more then teaching in, why are you not doing that already? Right. Our math scores stink. Compress, 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 so we get our kids learning better than they are right now. If we have a curriculum that is set up right now that is so flabby that we can absorb right. all these lost days, then the curriculum is too flabby. Tighten it up and make it more useful. And if it's not, these days should be made up at the end of the year because we're missing such valuable time. It's be one or the other. Because anyone who would say, in my mind, anyone who would turn around and say, our kids are not losing anything by what's going on here. And that's not even arguing about whether or not you agree with the teachers or not. You can agree with the teachers and agree with what we're saying. You can be on the teacher's side in this thing and still say, yeah, but somehow our kids are missing out on valuable time. And what are we going to do for that? And the answer in the past anyway has seemed to be nothing. It's just, as I was educated in the Hamilton public school system, I'm therefore unable to calculate this, but how many days have been missed with all the different boards and and not some like today was easy it was everybody for a day yes but i don't know are, I don't are we know getting either. close to 15 i would not say so i would say we've got time to go yet but we also heard from the union leadership that this was the next big step and it will accelerate after this so i don't know how many days each of the boards has missed but if things don't get settled they've made it clear that this is going to be more like this at some point, someone has to, and as I say, the teacher who wrote in, and I appreciate it, saying 15 days is the is the cutoff. Look, that may be the technical legal cutoff, but I think if you miss eight days or nine days or 10 days, you got to do something to make up that time. We need Mrs. Lovejoy and her constant plea of what about the children? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lauren, it strikes me, and maybe I'm being naive, I don't know, but that when you're talking about kids that are now coming into high school, who have been born with an iPad in their hand and a smartphone mm -hmm. in their hand and in front of a computer, this is not the same, it seems to me, this is not the same as telling a 50-year-old that you have to take a college course, and you know, a mature subject course online or something. Computers would seem to me to be as comfortable for these kids as sitting in class, wouldn't it? Yes. So I have asked, um, there's a lot of educators in my, in my world, what the objection with this is. And I've, I have heard all kinds of things. Um, of course, nobody is going to suggest that a computer screen um, should be replacing teachers. Um, but not all kids have access to computers. Not all, everybody has. And, and, and before I dive into the 101 reasons of what's wrong with it, what's really wrong with the discussion on this is 
that the government hasn't come out with an e-learning policy. And not to you or me, but not to the unions either. So they are rejecting something that hasn't even been thought of yet. Are we talking about kids learning um, from a central uh, video uh, in classroom? Are we talking about kids learning at home? Are we talking about... There isn't a policy yet. Um, But there's all of this pearl clutching about this is wrong. Well, is it wrong? You can't get excited and scream about how terrible it is if we haven't even figured out what it actually is. The there is a, a um, an area in Michigan, a school district in Michigan that has uh, done th- well. Not just a district, a large section mm-hmm. of Michigan has tried this with mixed results. Some areas it's been wildly successful. Other areas it's been rather unsuccessful. Post secondary is virtually becoming more and more this overnight. That's, that's true. That's that's true. That's how um, professionals um, upgrade their certification online with e-learning. Um, if you want to get even... But is it different when you're 15 years old and you have the attention span of a fruit fly? No. Should it's... you be not having to do this on your own? Rather, you're in a class and the teacher can talk to you and rein you in. Scott, I think it's more ludicrous for me to have to e-learn than a 15-year-old. They They are accustomed to that way of learning as opposed to old guys like us, right? I, like, well, well, I, look, I, I think that the, the, it strikes me as logical that kids who are in high school today would be comfortable in front of a screen, learning whatever they learn. And to the point that it was only a few years ago that the school board here in Hamilton introduced iPads mm-hmm. for kids in class because that would enable them to be in their milieu. It was going to be the thing they were mm-hmm. familiar with. That kind of e-learning, because that was a form of e-learning, was celebrated. Now, it didn't go so well. A lot of the students said this isn't working all that well for us. There were a number of issues beside that. But at that time, people who were in education said, this is the way of the future. And now we're talking about an e-learning and we're hearing, no, this can't be the way of the future. I'm I'm just confused. That's where it comes from. I'm confused about the kids who are so familiar with screens and tablets and all these things. Why would this not resonate with them? Why would this not work? And I get what you're saying. There are kids who are from poor parts, who are immigrants, who are from poor parts of the city who don't have access. You can have the school library set up. There with, are rural parts uh, that you don't have internet access. Uh, that, fair enough. That still exists. Fair enough. And, and so there are complications. I'm not, I'm not disputing that. The idea, though, that somehow this is a bad way of learning, I'm I, puzzled by that. That part puzzles me. Yes. And... Nobody has suggested that e-learning doesn't include teachers, but we've all um, jumped to this conclusion that the e-learning robot is going to replace uh, the educator. Well, I, I think the assumption would be that a teacher will set up a program, set up a curriculum online, and then once that was set up, you wouldn't have to do much except maybe tweak it every year because it would be... You know, you, you could eliminate the teacher from that because you will just have to, one teacher could handle a whole lot more kids. I guess that's the, that's the thought process behind it. Let me, let me take a break. We're going to come back and continue with this one because this to me is, as I say, is the interesting one and the conundrum that I'm having a harder time understanding. Not trying to be difficult about this. Look, maybe, maybe there is a really compelling reason why kids who are so familiar with devices can't learn on those devices that I'm not thinking about. I'm just not finding that connection. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking about the e-learning because this is, I mean, there are a number of issues that are on the table that have been the cause of this face-off, class sizes, compensation, and e-learning is really at the center of this. Um, you can make the argument, many have, that e-learning, that the the issue that the unions have with this is that it will cut back on the number of teachers, which may be a fair comment, probably is a fair comment. It probably will cost some teaching positions. I, I don't dispute that one. So you can see why they would be upset with this. But we're talking specifically, Lauren, about the concept of e-learning and whether it's something that we should be afraid of and whether we should say is going to not serve students, that this is going to hurt their education. And, and as I said, I, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm trying to look at this from both sides and I'm struggling to see how 
a generation of kids who grew up with screens in front of their faces and are so comfortable there, how that would be something that would cause them educational distress. And I can't see, I just, I I have a hard time finding out where they would struggle with that. Agree. I got nothing. So it seems logical. So if they, if they don't, and again, we, I, I will point to be absolutely fair. I'll point to this study in Michigan where they've done test runs. And now I haven't seen what they did in Michigan. Like I haven't seen how they operated their e-learning to know why the district school districts in some parts had exceptional results and other parts had very poor results. I don't know why, but it seems to me that would you not expect then that they would look, whoever in Ontario is putting this together would look at that and say, okay, whatever they're doing in the good part, we're going to do that. Right. And, and learn from, I, sure. And you know who should be wanting to learn about that more than anybody else? The teacher unions who represent teachers because teachers care about nothing other than educating our kids. But even if you were to say that we're going to take this part of the Michigan study or some other place that did this, and it may not come in perfect right off the bat, we may have to tweak it over time. Is that not what we do with education now anyway? We've, we we're do using, not teach today the way we taught hundred years ago. We're using a new math yes. now that people either love or hate, but we don't, we tweak things because we have new developments in, in styles and beliefs and philosophies that we say, okay, now we got to use this because this is better. Now we use discovery math and now we have to explain our answers rather than just give them and all these things. It's because times change. We work on stuff. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, I believe me, we've talked about that discovery math on the show a number of times and I get glassy eyed when, uh, when I try to solve the problems the way the kids today are supposed to solve them. Nonetheless, this is, this is a way we're told is, is better. And so I look, be, be it as it may, I simply find it very difficult to see that e-learning as a result then becomes one of the issues that is taking us to where we are today. I, 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 if we're talking about now all four boards walking out, if teachers, sorry, if e-learning is one of the crux issues that we can't seem to get past. I'm not getting, other than the fact that some jobs may be gone because of it. And that I I say, okay, fair enough. You're, as a union, you're protecting your jobs. I understand what your role is as the union. But to say that somehow e-learning is not going to benefit kids or kids won't be able to learn or kids, I I don't, I, I find it hard to believe that. Anyway, it's a, uh, we'll see, we'll see. I mean, this is not going to go away and, and I'm, I'm very interested to see when this thing gets settled, if e-learning is still part, depending on how the settlement goes, Right. if e-learning is still on the table, two kids per classroom, but a whole lot of e-learning deal. Well, they, apparently I read something today that the government had said, we'll put off the e-learning thing till 21 or till 2024. To, to figure it out and to be able to get the- Come out with a policy. Come out with a policy. Yes. And it's not all e-learning. It's a couple of classes. <laughs> yes. And, and let, let's be honest, every kid, every kid, you and I did too, every kid takes a couple classes in high school that are not exactly as difficult as advanced calculus. We know that there are right. some classes that e-learning you could- Sure. I mean, are you going to tell me, as an example, are you going to tell me that more kids would not be- more comfortable taking e-learning, let's say for grade 12 biology, when you're talking about reproduction and human sexuality, and all the rest, rather than sitting in a classroom with a bunch of their friends giggling about it, you're telling me that would not, you wouldn't learn more now. I mean, we've got to be careful what we put on our computer screen, but here's an example of something where you could probably learn more better by having it on e-learning. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, let's go to the second biggest story, I think, of the day. And this one spreads all across Canada. And this is the blockades that we have right now yep. on rail lines for the uh, protesting, the pipelines and everything else. Lauren, here's the one question. There's so many questions, so many ways we could go on this. Here's the one question I want to ask you about this. 20, all 20 of the elected band councils who hold land or represent land where these pipelines would go through in the area of 
where it would be affected. All 20 have signed on that they want this pipeline, elected band councils, yes. that they want this because it'll bring millions of dollars and jobs and opportunity and everything else mm-hmm. that has been sadly lacking, which I thought was much of what we have been hearing and being told that we need to do to engage our Indigenous people, give them opportunities. Yes. So the people then who are not Indigenous, who are protesting, and many of the people who are protesting these rail lines are not Indigenous people, is that not just another form of colonialism that we're telling Indigenous people again what's good for them and what they should want? Is that not exactly the same as what they're ostensibly arguing against? The the elected band councils um, that exist around here. So I'm familiar with Six Nations of the Grand River and New Credit of the Mississaugas and Tyndanaga and that kind of stuff. I actually have no real firsthand knowledge of how it works on the reservations in northern BC. But the elected band councils around here are perceived by many of their band members to be a construct of the Indian Act and universal less than 5% voter turnout. It is not the consensus form of government. It is the only one that seems to have a provincial and and federal government uh, negotiation abilities. But we seem to think that if we put a different peoples in our system, that that therefore is good enough. I'm not. I'm not leaning one way or the other on this, but I just want to make that clear that the elected councils do not have the authority that many government officials, Canadian government, provincial government officials seem to think they do. It's also my understanding that an awful lot of the hereditary chiefs um, are also in support because a lot of the hereditary chiefs as well um, view the importance to all the things that you talked about, job creation and looking after infrastructure projects with, for Wet'suwet'en, it is a $10 million infusion of cash annually. Mm -hmm. That's just the cash, separate from the jobs it's going to create, separate, like, there are certainly a lot of hereditary chiefs that view that to be a wonderful thing as well. I don't, um, I don't know. I'm not there. I'm not out in Belleville. I don't know how many white faces are there. Um, I don't know what the breakdown of um, anarchists, Antifa versus environmentalists versus First Nations activists. I don't know. Um, I do have some friends in media who are there, and they confirm, as you state, that there is an awful lot of white faces. Um, But whether you are an ally, um, whether it be an environmental ally or or an indigenous person's ally, that's... To me, that's relatively valid to stand with them and show support. But are you, but here's where the, here's where the difficulty <laughs> comes in, because as you just, and, and I appreciate the explanation, I think it was, it was very instructive for everyone to hear that. But as you just mentioned, you have differing opinions within the indigenous community. You have some who are in favor and you have some who are opposed. So how do you, how do you negotiate with that? How do you figure out then whose side you're going to stand on? Because if you're standing with the protesters, by definition, you are opposing those who are in support of the pipeline. And if you're in support of the pipeline, you are by definition opposed to those who are not in favor of the pipeline. One way or another, you're not standing, like somehow the perception here has been that this, that the protesters represent all Indigenous people who are all opposed to this, no, except for a few. Not. That's been the perception, certainly though, not. that's been, right. I think, pretty well or pretty widely spread. That's not the case at all. No. That's not the case at all. So for the ones who are in support of this, do they not have a voice? Are they not supposed to have a voice? Are they? Do they just have the wrong voice so that voice is no longer to be listened to? I think it's too easy su- to suggest that this is a, a problem of native versus native. It's... It, to some degree. Yes, but that's not where the solution lies because it's not, it wasn't a native that began this project. 
So there's a few things on all of this that don't make a whole lot of sense to me. As we do know, this is a natural gas pipeline, not crude oil. Mm -hmm. So I have heard that it has no environmental impact. Should there be a spill, it just goes into the environment and it's an absolute nothing. Two, it would be 100 times worse than Chernobyl because liquid gas is the worst thing ever. So, and I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know who, but, and that's okay that I don't know. But the people who are protesting don't know. The people who are trying to calm down the protest don't know. There's a ton of confusion on all of this. And you got to think whether it's the elected band councils or, <coughs> pardon me, the hereditary chiefs, they are both, you would think, interested in what is best for their communities and best for their future generations. And whether they hold the environment over jobs or whether there is no realistic environmental concerns. I, I don't know. This allegedly took 15 years, but apparently there wasn't enough consultation. The, the, the challenge of this, I think, becomes very obvious among many challenges, and that is if you have a community, and I even hate to use the word community because there's so many communities. This is like, it's like saying all women think one way. So therefore, you know, all indigenous feel this way. And that's course. not, that's not the way this is any more than any other group of people. It's ridiculous to say, well, you're this, so therefore you feel this way. That's not the case in any facet of society. But if you have uh, hereditary chiefs and you have elected band councils and you've got some agreeing with things, some not agreeing, how do you possibly, if you're the federal government, any federal government, liberal, conservative, doesn't matter, how do you possibly negotiate? When you have a reconciliation, how do you negotiate when there is no person who speaks for that group per se, there's no agreement on a lot of things. So if you're, if I'm negotiating with you and I make a deal with you, great, we've made a deal. We're going to make some progress in this reconciliation. But then there's another facet that says, no, what you just did is now ruining reconciliation. It's a, it is incredibly, unbelievably complicated to try and figure out who you negotiate with, how you negotiate this, and how you resolve these problems. Well, I think, I think the, the, you, you touched on a, a point in there, and I think that there remains an awful lot of anger within the Native community to their provincial and federal governments. And whether this is about pipelines or whether this is about expressing anger, uh, that a real story can be made on either side of that, Scott. There are some legitimate issues that are not being addressed. And our prime minister going around to every reservation known to man, um, crying and apologizing, yet four or five years later, implementing nothing, they... Our First Nations people thought they finally had their prime minister. And it's been nothing but lip service. And those who are within that community who are still on Team Trudeau aren't going to enjoy this fact. But in terms of a measurable, tangible way that we can look at the federal government vis-a-vis -vis our indigenous persons, the amount of land claims that were solved disputes that no longer are during Harper's tenure is more than Trudeau, Martin, and Cretchen combined. But all I know is that Harper hated natives and Trudeau loves them. I don't, I don't know what to say. We as white men make a big mistake and think indigenous peoples are a person. And they have very little in common except their history um, with the white man. Yeah, and we can't deal with them as an entity. They are all individual persons, each, each of their bands. And, and that to me is, and as I say, I use the example because we have people at times who say they, they represent women. Look, you and I know many women. None of them are attached by the brain where they all think exactly the same. They are individuals who have individual opinions. Right. But then Scott, there's, this is how we get to, to the real crux of this. 
when we have an issue in another community or for another segment of society, we don't expect consensus there either. No. So how does it get done? How do we do something for whether it be uh, the black community, the Muslim community, the Jewish community? Well, I'll tell you how it gets doesn't done. doesn't create protest that is good enough. I'll tell you how it gets done. Because with, with most community, in most elections, in most democratic society situations, we have a vote and the majority or the largest component wins that one. Now, I don't think we've ever done that with the Indigenous community and said, okay, everybody, here's a ballot. If you choose not to vote, that's your choice. Well, but that's what they do for their elected band council. I know, but you and just- nobody votes. And, but then, okay, but then they're the ones negotiating, but then you just said, and I, I'm not taking a shot at you, I'm yeah, saying yeah. The re- only 5%, so they have no real authority within the eyes but of then, the- Then the onus would be on the elected band councils, and specifically the chiefs of the various bands, to seek as close to consensus of their people from the hereditary chiefs and otherwise. And allegedly, that exists, Scott. That's what's happening. That those who we are not hearing from, who are getting paid, who are, that the majority of the hereditary chiefs are on side with this as well. And so, and so I've got to take a break here, but that's this to me is what makes this story so frustrating in a lot of ways because it does sound when you read when you read up on this when you listen that what you're saying is true that the majority which is the only way in a democratic society you can make a decision that's the majority of people want these things to happen scott when the mohawks and tainanega shut down the rail of this country it has nothing to do with pipelines. It has to do with their anger of empty promises and more um, disheartened federal government BS. And they showed what they can do, and they did it very successfully. It's nothing to do with pipelines. Nothing. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The NFL says that it wants to now expand its season to 17 games at another playoff game. Um, I don't think this is necessarily just because owners love watching football. There might be a few extra bucks to be made in this. However, isn't the NFL also the league that keeps talking about how its number one concern is player safety? Mm -hmm. How do you jibe? Now, the CFL plays 18 games. But how do you jibe if you're going up and saying, we're all about player safety, knowing that the more games you play, the more battering players' bodies take and mm-hmm. heads potentially. How do, you, how do you balance that? So the average NFL career is 4.2 years Something if like you that. ever make it to the show. Yep. So adding a game is not like adding years. No, there's, for every Tom Brady, there's 10,000 everybody else's yes. who are not going to see the difference. This is a wonderful opportunity for the players union to not only get more money for the players now, but more money for the former players and for their pension funds and for um, future injuries and treatments and the rest of it. There's a, there's a real opportunity for leverage here. And do you think for a second that if you go into the negotiations with the players union, when the ownership goes to them and says, we want to add an extra game and an extra playoff game. Mm -hmm. And we would like to contribute more to the pension fund that the owners, that the union is going to say, oh yeah, we don't need any more money. Just no, no, in the- addition to. See, I don't even see that. I, I think what happens here is that the, if it happens, the players say, that's fine. We get another prorated amount for another game. So if I was being paid right. whatever for 16, I now get that same amount again for 17. And I don't see... It's very short-sighted. So this is a great opportunity for NFL agents and the players' union to suggest now that it's putting more pressure on the bodies and the health of the players and that they need a higher percentage of their contracts guaranteed. Yes. Because um, unlike most other sports, you'd sign a contract in the NFL, doesn't mean you're getting paid once you get hurt. No, you get guaranteed you get, money if you can get some and then... Right. Yeah. Look, I, I would love, I, I, I don't expect this in a million years. I would love to see a couple things happen. I would love to see the NFL say, we're going to go to three exhibition games instead of four, because there is literally yes. nothing in the world of sports other Ugh. than the NHL All-Star game and the Pro Bowl. Fair. There is nothing in sports worse than an NFL exhibition game. 
They are horrendous oh, to watch. CFL exhibition. Well, okay, is fair enough. Fair enough. Amazing. <laughs> we'll, we'll put it in the category. Yeah. Um, but there's not much worse than watching those games. So yeah, get rid of one and make it so now you've got 17. Because you know what? All the starters I, play in the last exhibition game anyway. And only. And oh, and really, oh, they may yes. play a few downs. Um, I don't like 17. It, it's it's a it's a yucky, awkward number. Make it 18. Well, then lose two of the exhibition games. Fine. And, 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 and the other thing I would say is I would love to see, and I don't expect this in a million years, as I say, but I would love to see exactly what you just said for the uh, agents to say, our players want X dollars, Mm -hmm. but if you're doing this, we want X dollars as well put into the retired players pension, whatever fund they have right now. And not even necessarily for the guys who are playing today. Because pretty much every guy who's playing today is making some decent money. But the guys from the past who are, let's make sure that even after this first year that every guy who's a retiree who's hobbling around gets mm-hmm. some money here to to get some help and get some medical attention. I, I That would be, to me, the NFL players would come out of this thing looking like the greatest athletes, philanthropic, good guy athletes in sports. Do you think they want to make me head of the players' union? It's a job I'd consider. Yeah, probably only pays about fifteen million a year. No, that's sorry, that's uh, that's Goodell. That's commissioner. Yeah. Uh, no, I, look, I, yeah. I would, lo- I would love to see that because there are too many players who, from the sixties, seventies, even into the eighties, and who, still, yeah. Although, as I say, the guys today, by and large, if they're even remotely protective with their money, can make sure they put some away sure, for down the road. We still have recent retirees with head trauma and suicide. And oh, sure. And that. we have guys who get injured in their second game yes. ever and can't play anymore. Absolutely. Yes. Those, uh, yes. Th- there should be, t- there should be some way with all the money that flies around in the NFL mm-hmm. and the NFL is just swimming in money. Mm-hmm. It's inexcusable that any former player, whether he played one down and suffered a career ending injury or, played for 15 years, and even if he blew his money, there's no reason why you shouldn't be doing something to make sure every single retiree has semi good. Everything that you've said is easily applied to the NCAA with all the money they're making and the injuries those kids are getting, the wear and tear that's going on in their bodies. It's an interesting one. I, 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 I have a harder time with the NCAA one. With the end, because you're getting, in my mind, you don't get paid the full amount when you're on an internship to learn your craft that you do when you're working full time. Right. You're getting your university paid for, you're getting your room and board, you're getting training towards a possible professional Which career. Which for many of those athletes is nothing. See, here's what I've said before about the NCAA and sports is that at the end of your playing career, whatever your sport is, Mm -hmm. if you don't go on to a professional career because of all the money that is being brought in, you should get a lump sum of some amount. So Lauren Lieberman plays offensive tackle for Boogaloo State University, and you play four years there, and you, when you're done, you're done, and East Boogaloo State brought in X million dollars over the course of the time you were there, and mm-hmm. you'll get some percent. You walk out with $100,000 for having done that. But if you go pro, no, no, you, we don't, we're not going to pay you for that. We gave you the apprenticeship here that allowed you to go and do that. No, no, you're wrong, Scott, because me going pro only adds more prestige to East Boogaloo, helps them recruit better. Yes. In fact, my pro success is more valuable and you should pay me even more because in the long term of what it's doing for the school. That is, that is, uh, I am, I am a, uh, I am a tried and true capitalist, but even then I say you have, you have received from the school, you know, my son right now is doing an internship for his university. And he's not being paid, he, but he is getting something for that. He is getting the experience. He is getting the opportunity to learn what he's doing. Look, I, when, I, when I was in journalism school and I went and worked 
to start with. I learned more in my internship than I did in all my university years. For sure. Everybody does. So when you're- How much money did the school that you went to for- for journalism and internship, make off of the notion that you were interning there. Uh, that I did was they monetize there? that? Uh, I I highly doubt it because uh, well I never heard about it. If they did, <laughs> and, no, I, like, that's the difference. I, I'm I'm okay with I, I'm okay with the idea that you if you don't go pro, but wh- why would you when when Johnny Manziel. Johnny Manziel, I mean, for the, for whatever happened there, when when he walked out and signed a multi 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 million dollar contract with the Cleveland Browns after mm-hmm. he was drafted, he had made a lot of money for Texas A and M University. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, he also did very well because Texas A and M prepared him and gave him the opportunity to go and make his millions. I'm not sure that he needs to he that he needed more as he walked out the door than the fact that he was given the opportunity to <clears throat> apprentice there. He could use it now. He could well, I, I don't know. He did make I mean he had a big signing bonus when he signed on there. Like all the all the guys who did in their when they signed on sure. for his first year and he did first get, round draft pick. Did make all that crazy tie cap money. And the and the comeback season gear stuff that he was selling. I'm sure that four or five hats were sold. Right. <laughs> it's an interesting one, but I'm frankly, the one thing I have not heard as we go to break, the one thing I haven't heard from the NFL yet is, well, wait a second. How come the CFL can do 18 games in a season? And I don't know that I've stood on the field for CFL games. Do they even know what the CFL no, is though? they don't. Right. But I've stood on the field for CFL games. Let me tell you, it's love the game or hate the game. It's not touch football. It's not flag football. I, Those guys get hammered and their bodies get pounded like... Guys in other They're big sports. boys too. They're not NFL big. They're, no, but there's a big difference too, is that there's a lot more space. So there, if you're going to get hit hard, yeah. there's a lot more time for you to be at full speed yeah. and get slammed around. You know who really should get a lot of money though? Of all this out of football, now that I just thought about it, speaking of guys, Scott Gardner, photographer for the spectator who got hit on the sideline and has his knee. See, guys like that, spectator photographers who get injured at football games, they're the ones who should get the big paydays. Right. Well, it's up to their union. Scott, if it happens, just remember who told them to do it, and I'm happy to take a cut. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.